I'd like you to turn your Bibles this morning to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We're going to look at a somewhat familiar uh, text this morning. And we're going to be looking at this simple theme that Christmas is full of good news. Christmas is full of good news. I, uh, I love the season of Christmas. I enjoy uh, many aspects of it, particularly the time that we get to spend with family. And uh, just the focused joys that emerge in the midst of this celebration are beautiful. Um, I also realize that those who know the true story of Jesus are often saddened at some level in this season by the substitution of nostalgia and holiday atmosphere for the true story of Jesus. In this exchange, we can lose sight of the lasting treasure that has the capacity to change our lives forever. We are so prone as human beings to pursue the temporal at the expense of the eternal. And this morning, I want to help to uh, draw our attention to the eternal value of the gospel of Christ that is made known in the Christmas season. I want to encourage you this morning to love Jesus Christ more intentionally than you already do. I want you to strive at keeping Christ at the center and to resist the tendency to exchange temporal or the eternal for the temporal. Now, that's a tendency that we have in seasons, in holiday seasons particularly. But the question I want to put before you is this, this morning. Is it not also possible that the church can lose its focus on the gospel, on the main thing? Is it possible that we can have pursuits that become substitutes for the true difference-making power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I would argue throughout church history, there has always been a tendency to drift from what we would call a conservative evangelical approach to scripture to move from that towards a more liberal ideology that values other things above the gospel. And so that's the tendency that we are regularly charged with as pastors of, of being careful of and aware of. The Apostle Paul addresses this on a number of occasions in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul feared a loss of or downgrade of the gospel as the main thing. He said, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And what I find fascinating about this text is that the Apostle Paul is revisiting the gospel for people that already are believers. He is aiming to keep the gospel as central and treasured in the life of the church. In Romans 1, 14 to 15, he makes this observation. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and Jews, both to wise and foolish. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Here's what's fascinating. The church in Rome is presumably a group of people that are already believers. And it is to them that Paul looks forward to preaching again the gospel. So here's our tendency. Our tendency is to see the gospel as that which begins the Christian experience. 
But as you move along in your walk with Christ, you will realize that you need the power of the gospel on a daily basis in your life. You will realize that you are a sinner who has been forgiven by the grace of God and who is in need of repeated maintenance in terms of forgiveness. So you need to treasure this gospel. And Paul Paul says, "I, I am eager to preach it to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul says, I am eager and I am indebted to the gospel lifelong indebtedness. First Timothy chapter one, he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost of all. Now, Paul in this letter is nearing the end of his life and ministry. He writes to Timothy talking about how he repeatedly celebrates the glory of the gospel because it is the continuing cause or the perpetual cause of life change. I want to challenge you this morning. Are you treasuring and valuing the gospel as Paul did? Matthew 15, 16, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Folks, we have been given a charge by God to make the gospel central to everything that we do and to never allow any other passion, any other desire to rise above our desire to communicate to people that there is hope in a Savior whose name is Jesus. The question I would ask you this morning is, is that passion for the gospel ever lost? I read a few years back a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor, a PhD from Berlin University, who in 1930 came to the United States. He came here to go to Union Theological Seminary, which is on the west side of Manhattan on the Hudson River. There the famous Riverside Church uh, was erected by the Rockefeller family as a broad-reaching social institution uh, that was aiming to clarify the purpose that John Rockefeller saw for the church. In Union Seminary, which was built on the premises of Riverside Church, Dietrich Bonhoeffer attended a school that had drifted from the centrality and power of the gospel. Liberalism had deeply affected the uh, school, Union Theological Seminary. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes this observation as a young man enchanted with coming to Manhattan, enchanted with coming to this glorious, famous seminary, to this glorious, famous church. He makes this observation. He says, in New York City, they preach about virtually everything. Only one thing is not addressed or often is so rarely addressed that as I have as yet been able to hear it, namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ, namely, the cross, sin and forgiveness, death and life. That's stunning, isn't it? He came to what was to be the centerpiece of the church in America and found it to be gospel-less. So folks, I would challenge us as a church family to be sure that we are always edging back towards a gospel-centeredness, that that becomes a, a, a clear and passionate pursuit of the body of Christ here at the chapel of Warren Valley, that we, in everything we do, 
are making the gospel central, for it is the power of God. Paul uses the word dunamis. It is the dynamic of God at work in people's lives. May God help us to never move on from the gospel. It was in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's interaction with the African-American church at Abyssinian Baptist Church. I didn't know this, but in the early 1900s, there was a black Baptist church founded in New York City by a pastor that came there in the early 1900s. It exceeded in attendance 15,000 people in the 1930s. It was there that Dietrich Bonhoeffer went, finding the Protestant church in America to have been rendered by and large dead by its loss of the gospel, went to the African-American church and there found a, what he calls a vibrant message of Christ. And he makes this observation. He, He says the gospel preached and its power to change lives was manifested there. And he concluded rightly that only when the gospel is preached and lived out that God comes into the equation. See, folks, there's a danger that we can think about living out the gospel in good works without attaching it to the dynamic message of the cross of Christ. And it's that that as Dietrich moved into that new church atmosphere, experiencing disappointment for the disregard of the gospel in the mainline church, he moved into that church setting and found a church that was vibrant and alive. And what he found was this. The works of the people of Christ were wedded with the gospel of Christ. And when they were wed together, God showed up in powerful ways. So do you understand what I'm saying? There's a tendency to value the expression of the gospel over the gospel itself. What we would argue as believers in Jesus Christ is that a love for the gospel will always manifest itself in powerful, spirit-driven works of righteousness for the community in which God has called us to live. The gospel must stay central. Dietrich Bonhoeffer then said, he said, if you don't have both gospel preaching and gospel living, you end up with neither. That is a striking indictment. And so I would encourage us as a church to always strive to make the Bible central to all that we do. Dietrich would, at the end of his visit to America, say this, do not try to make the Bible relevant. Its relevance is axiomatic. That is to say, it is automatic. Do not defend his word, but testify to it. Trust the word. And that's the message I think that we need to hold so dearly. That we would be men and women and a church that loves the gospel of Jesus Christ because the Bible is a gospel-centered story. This morning, I want to look at Luke 2 briefly to see how it gives us a Christmas account that is gospel-infused and saturated. Luke chapter 2 is one of my favorite accounts. It's a story of how Joseph and Mary go to the town of Bethlehem. There they give birth to Jesus in a shelter, in a manger. Verse 8 of Luke 2 tells us that as this birth is taking place, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. And they were keeping watch over their flock at night. There an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good noise of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes 
and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared and the angel praising God said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left him and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing, this gospel thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. I love that response to this glorious revelation. Let us go and see and let us go and tell. Christmas in the Bible is gospel infused and gospel saturated. I want to focus on two things. I want to focus on the audience and I want to focus on the announcement that is made to the audience. The audience is simply this, it's shepherds. Now, you can read wide and far about the shepherds. All Doug could probably do a better uh, job with this portion of this because he's more attuned to the historical factors that come into play. Uh, the shepherds were, at best, average people. They were your kind of run-of-the-mill commoner. Now, in our culture, many of us would consider ourselves to be commoners. In the ancient world, th- th- there was, a, there was a, a, a strong stratification Okay, there was the common people and then there were the religious elites and the financially powerful. And a lot of times they were the same people. Okay, so Jesus coming to a blue collar worker in our day would be somewhat common to us. That would be somewhat normative. But in the ancient world to go to this class of people said something about the reach and aim of the gospel. The shepherds were, I think, you could say, common people. And in the eye of the religious establishment, they were people that were somewhat beyond the reach or pale, to quote a famous person, they were somewhat irredeemable. Okay, because they they didn't have an in in the religious system, they didn't have the capacity to be involved, and therefore couldn't do enough to merit favor with God. Okay? And and I want to challenge us as a church this morning with this thought. I want you to think about who in your life fits into the category of those that you would consider irredeemable. Meaning, people that you interact with that you have little hope for lasting conversion and change. I want you to think about that. I've got people in my life like that who, I'll be honest with you, and I, I'm fairly intentional in my life about engaging with people. And honestly, I strive by God's grace to engage with anyone. That is my commitment. Uh, over the last three years in, in this change, I've had the blessing and privilege of time to do that. Uh, uh, but I'll tell you that as I do that, I know what it is to wrestle with wondering if this person could ever really change. Does that make sense? There are people that, you know, someone got chided for calling people irredeemable recently. But can we bring that chiding back to ourselves? Can we at least be honest and say that there are times that I, not because of a profound degree of self-righteousness, but because of the deepness of sin and the, and the bondage and hold that it has on people. There are times that I, I wrestle with, with believing, with faith to know that God can change this person. 
And I think as you study through the gospel accounts, you're going to find that Jesus Christ is regularly interacting with people that the average person had written off, had labeled as irredeemable, not rescuable, kind of just a little too far gone. And folks, here's what I love. When Christ comes on the scene and when the angels come on the scene to announce the good news, the gospel that is central to Christmas, when they do it, they don't go to find highfalutin people, very few. The only thing that's mixed in are wise men, but they're wise men that are Gentiles. Okay, so they're also in a class of people that are somewhat untouchable and irredeemable in the mind of the religious establishment of Jesus' day. And so this message of the gospel is, is given to people that weren't likely to be affected by it from a human perspective. And that, yet that is who God targets in this account. Now, what I love about the announcement that is given, and, and, and I want to shift to this now, from the audience, God taking steps to set the tone that he comes to seek and to save that which is lost. For them, he is an announcement. I want to say that that announcement that is made by the angels in this case is a message of hope. Why is it a message of hope? Why does it focus on that aspect of the gospel? I believe it focuses on it because these are people that had start to buy what everybody else believed about them. That though God may be good, he is not able to seek and to save them. And it's that that we need to shatter, and it's that that I believe that the gospel of Christ does in fact shatter completely. The message is powerful. The angel said to them, as they quake in fear that they would be the audience, do not be afraid. How does he calm their hearts? He says, I bring you good news. And that's the word, if you, if you look into the Greek, that's the word, I bring you gospel. I bring you a message of hope. And it is also a message of great joy. It will transform your spiritual depression into deep, abundant, joyful gratitude. It's good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That's the audience that God expresses this to. Great joy containing and prompting a new change of heart, a new outlook. Verse 11 then goes into the specifics of the message. This is the gospel in its early form. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born for you. Now, I want you to think about this. A Savior has been born for you literally means one has come distinctly for the advantage or benefit of you. Okay, folks, understand this. Jesus Christ came for your benefit. Not to help you get past the things you couldn't get past, but to literally transform your life and to rescue you from the consequences of your rebellion and sin. That is the message that goes to these shepherds. It's not a call to reformation. It's not God responding to their searching. They had nothing to do with their selection in this. God comes to them to make a statement to them that will resonate throughout time that the gospel is for average normal people irregardless of their depravity, irregardless of the darkness of their heart. There is hope for them. That is the message 
that comes through, born for your advantage, without qualification. And notice what it says, a Savior. He is Christ, the Old Testament promised Messiah, and he is Lord, he is King. This will be a sign for you. This is how you will know that you've arrived at the right place. And I love this. You will find a baby wrapped in common cloth and lying in a manger. But when you look, realize that he is so much more. He is the gospel. He is the good news of God come in human flesh. And then there is this great company of the heavenly host that continues with the announcement. They appear with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor, his grace rests. Folks, our hope is not bound up in our performance. Our hope is bound up in the performance of Christ. And and this text makes a promise. This text makes a promise that God intends to bring favor into the life of average people, many of them seen as irredeemable people. But the favor of God is by his sovereignty moving into their lives. That's the message for these shepherds this day. God has come. God has come to save. He has come to save you in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who will bear the consequences of your sin on Calvary's cross and offer you a free gift called eternal life and forgiveness of all your sins. That is the gospel message that saturates the Christmas story. You see, Christmas brings the gospel to center stage. The emphasis of every account in terms of the Christmas story is Jesus Christ as Savior. I found this old piece of poetry as I was working through my studies on this. It says this, the interrogation of the babe in the manger. Who art thou, precious little babe? Nestled in hay, God I am. Come to earth this day. Why didst thou come? Sweet little baby nestled in the hay to die I came. The price of sin to pay. Whose sin? Tender little babe nestled in the hay. Yours it was that brought me down today. But folks, the greatest awakening that you will ever have is when you realize that Jesus Christ came to be your Savior. Now, here's what we know about ourselves. We know our dark secrets. Our secrets tend to have us, don't they? We don't have them. They have us. And we wonder, is there hope? Can my life truly be changed? Not can I receive acts of kindness, but can my life be radically transformed by the power of God? And I would argue that the gospel message says yes, yes, yes. I I, I was struck recently by the... uh, All right, let me me say this first. I tend not to be a lover of Christmas carols, okay? Because, and I know that's, that's almost heretical, right? I know you're probably hating on me. But I'm going through a little bit of a renaissance, okay? I've... Sometimes I just don't think they say much. 
Okay, and I'm just not, we, we in, in our worship times here at the chapel strive to be gospel-centered and, and very content-driven in what we sing so that the truth of the gospel fills our hearts with passion and amazement so that the expressions that are given to God are in response to the central piece of our relationship, and that is the gospel of Christ. Okay, we want gospel-infused singing so that we have gospel-centered worship. That's what drives passion. That's what drives your life ultimately at the end of the day. Emotions will not do it unless those passions and emotions are inflamed by the truth of the gospel. And you will find yourself singing that to yourself over and over and over again. I thought about the words to We Three Kings, which I'm going to tell you, if you said, should we sing that in church? Nah, (laughs) because of my ignorance, okay? I heard it at a concert recently, and the words just like were like a dagger for me. Listen to what some of this says about the crosswork of Christ. Myrrh is mine, it's bitter perfume. Breeze of life, of gathering gloom. Sorrowing, sighing. Bleeding, dying. Sealed in a stone cold tomb. I thought to myself, that is like one of the most powerful descriptions of the crucifixion that I think I've ever heard. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in a stone-cold tomb. And then the chorus, star of wonder, star of night, star of royal beauty, bright, westward leading, still proceeding. Guide us to thy perfect light so that the star that leads to Jesus is not the main thing. The main thing is where the star takes you. The main thing is where the shepherds were guided. If you get fixated on the fact that they heard this awesome message out on a hill, and that's where it ends, you miss the story. See, after the revelation of the gospel was given to them, they look at each other and say, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has been spoken to us. Let us go see the gospel. This song, We Three Kings, continues on. Guide us by thy perfect light, glorious now, behold him arise. Do you know the next phrase? King and God and sacrifice. I said to myself, that's it. That's the glory of the gospel that's been bound up in words that I've, I've said. I, when they were singing them, I knew what was coming next. Last time I heard that, last week at a concert. And it struck me. The one who is king and God became sacrifice. That's Christmas. He was born to die so that he could seek and save that which is lost. That's the glory of the gospel. That's what a gospel-saturated Christmas season will bring. For the people for whom I have little hope, there is a Savior can change your life. Verse 16 at the end of this text about the wise men is beautiful. This is what it says. It says, So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been, or they, they spread the word concerning what had been foretold about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying 
and praising God for all that they had seen and heard, which was just as they had been told. Now see, folks, when your life is infused with the gospel, when you come near to the good news of the gospel and it begins to transform and change your life, you won't be able to keep silent about it unless you forget it. So my challenge to you this morning is this. Read through the gospel accounts of Christmas. See how gospel-saturated they are and let that begin to affect your life. Begin to meditate on it and think about it. So these couple of suggestions this morning. Realizing that we have a tendency to forget the gospel, a.k.a. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Apostle Paul. The Christmas story brings us back to a centrality of the gospel, the preciousness of the gospel. And the question is this, how do we, through the year, maintain this gospel-centered focus in everything that we do? How do we maintain that? And let me just give you a couple very simple applications of this. Number one, in your failure as a Christian, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach to yourself that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the truth. The truth is that many of us who have been converted by the gospel for some time may not treasure it as we should because many of us tend to see the gospel as truth for unbelievers. Does that make sense? When I've, when I've attended classes to learn how to share the gospel, I'm going to be honest with you. My tendency has been to study to gain information so that I can effectively share with people a message they need to hear to change their life. And I'm wrong. I mean, it's true. What I said isn't untrue. But if I believe that the gospel is simply for people outside of Christ and not for people in the church, I don't know how I square with what Paul is saying in Romans and 1 Corinthians, that he longed to preach the gospel to the church. Why? A man named Vincent wrote a book called The Gospel Primer. In it, he makes this observation. And, and, and he's kind of picking off of, a, of an encouragement by a gentleman named C.J. Mahaney who, who talks about our tendency to listen to ourselves as opposed to speaking to ourselves. Okay, meaning, do you ever wrestle with thoughts of self-condemnation? Any of you? Or am I the only one? Okay. I was just said, I can be such a spiritual jerk. Or I can be... I can be at times, a husband that is pretty unattractive. And those thoughts of condemnation, and I'm pretty good at repeating them, can put me in bondage. Vincent says this, never move on from the gospel. He says, as long as I am stricken by the guilt of my sins, I will be captive to them and will often find myself recommitting the very sins about which I feel the most guilty. He observes, the devil is well aware of this fact. He knows that if he can keep me tormented by sin's guilt, he can dominate me by sin's power. 
Because I want to tell you something. There isn't a born-again person in this place who has been washed by the blood of Christ who doesn't sin. And here's what happens. The guilt of that sin begins to mount if it is unconfessed. And if it is not brought into the piercing light of the gospel. And it will begin to dominate you with sin's power. It will render the gospel you know in your mind to be ineffective in terms of changing your heart. He goes on to say the free forgiveness of God made known through the gospel slays sin at its root and liberates me from its guilt and preaching, the, and preaching that forgiveness to myself is a way of putting the gospel into operation as a nullifier of sin's power in my life. You see, folks, the gospel is for the unbeliever and it is for the believer. I need to be reminded of that on a regular basis or I start listening to my self-condemnation. It's why we sing songs like he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood avails for me. Folks, I hope you're not singing that so someone else hears you. I hope you're singing it to yourself so that the gospel begins to transform and change. Paul writes to believers saying, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us the effects of the gospel for believers. Now think about that the next time that Satan seeks to bind you in the bondage of guilt. Sing that truth to yourself and let him hear it and let him flee you see when we stop celebrating the gospel celebrating the gospel we lose the power of the transformed life we sing when satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward i look and see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless savior died my sinful soul is counted clean and god the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So I can sing honestly, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I know that. And it is the gospel that gives me permission to come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in my time of need. Don't forget the gospel. Don't think of it as truth for unbelievers. Think of it as a message they desperately need and deserve to hear from us. But also think of it as your hope. Don't move on from the gospel. Because if you do, despair will drown you spiritually. And then as you are filled with joy, as you remember the gospel that's not only for sinners, but for saved sinners, let it then dr drive gratitude that leads you to gospel-driven service so that I am never out serving and at other times I'm out evangelizing. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer meant. He said, if you do either one independently, you lose the power of both so that our serving must always be gospel-driven. 
And our gospel must always lead to life change and service. Do you see? So as you love the gospel, you're going to find freedom from material pursuits and freedom from the bondage of things that have your life. Because the gospel is going to recenter you. It's what it does to the Christmas story. It makes it what it is. And when the gospel becomes prominent in your life, the main thing, it will reorient everything. Your parenting will change. You'll not be judgmental of sinful kids. You'll see yourself in them. You won't be frustrated when they manifest your tendencies. Because you can say, the gospel of God changed me. And I must meet them in their sin with the gospel of Christ. Work through my life. Do you see? It's what enables a wife to forgive an arrogant husband. Like me. And love him in spite of himself. Because she is loved in spite of herself by Christ. Folks, let the gospel just, let it flow through. Let it flow through. And let it bring such gratitude that you can't help but speaking about it. See, the shepherds saw everything as God told them. They went and they saw the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. And they knew that this one, because they were told, you'll find him wrapped in those clothes. And they went and they found him there. And they saw something that was so amazing that as they went to see it, they couldn't stop talking about it. And as they left, they couldn't stop talking about it. God came to them. In the gospel, God comes to you. Not because you were seeking him, but because of his mercy and grace. Let that begin to affect and change. On Thursday of last week, I was, I was fixing a problem uh, for a company that I work for. A project we had done this summer, and we left things a mess. I didn't realize it. I, w- I went up into the attic of this house, and I was like, I did this, and that's terrible. Okay, the cold's coming, and there were sprinkler pipes exposed in the roof in the top of this building. And I went in, and we got a call from someone saying, you need to come fix this today. It's like, okay, I'll be there. So I was kind of on a mission to uh, resolve some guilt, okay? But I was also doing the individual favor who had called. Because if I did it, then he didn't have to. I, I met that man. And he, he expressed gratitude, but I understand it wasn't anything outstanding that I was doing, okay? So that's the point of what I'm saying. I, nothing outstanding. I just met a guy in a situation where I was kind of doing him a favor, but something we should have done a while ago, but I was kind of helping him out so he didn't have to go do it because it's going to get cold. I had time, took time with that. That little bit of flexibility, it, it, it hit him. He said, thank you so much for, for coming down. We had talked for a little while then after that, and he had a vivid vocabulary. I say it that way? He, he, he was creative in his speech. He started going on about some stuff that he's dealing with. And, and then he, he says, oh, what were you doing today? And I said, honestly, I said I was working at the shop right building. Oh, what are you doing there? I said, well, we're, our church is like going to use that for our church building. Oh, what do you do there? Uh, like, I'm the pastor. And then I get the obligatory, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for what I, and I looked at him, I looked at him, I said, I said, you don't have to answer to me. 
that's what I say to everybody when they, when they find out I'm a pastor. Oh, like, you don't have to answer me. Well, a lot of times that kind of goes by. And, I'll, I, and I, for some reason, you, sometimes God is just, when you're preaching on this stuff, you better practice it, okay? I said to him, I said, I said, I would be a much easier judge on you than God could ever be. Because I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. If I come down on you, who, who am I? He said, I would just be a self-righteous hypocrite. Which led to, boom, stuff in his life. We'll use, for the sake of discussion, uh, Herbie for a name, okay? Because that actually is his name. (laughs) And got talking about stuff and life and a broken marriage recent and... And I said to him, look, I said, there, there's hope in Christ. And we shared cell phone numbers, and we've been contacting each other over the weekend to try to get together next week. Now, I, here's, for the gospel, that's it. I get nothing to gain from this guy. But here's what I want you to realize is what God wants you to do with the gospel, being gospel-saturated and beginning to share it, there is no rocket science in what happened in that relationship with him. It's just, if we start to say, God, I... Give me gospel-centered opportunities, gospel-saturated opportunities, and let me take what I know into that circumstance. Let God do what God does. Okay? When I meet with him, I'm just going to share with him the two ways to live thing, which I share with everybody. Just a simple story of the gospel. But I need to get into his life first. My friend from uh, uh, property management, Chris in Allentown, uh, was attacked by his dog and almost killed by his dog on a Friday night. Uh, He called me yesterday out of the blue and planted just to not because I'm something special. I just know Jesus. That's all. Because I, I want to encourage you. Start to let the gospel so fill you up that you can't contain it. Because here's what happens. The Spirit of God sheds the love of God, Romans 5, 5, abroad in your heart. The love of God is always manifested in the gospel. Not, as in, not in experiences, but in the gospel that brings you to experiences. Okay, And when that gospel is shed abroad in your heart, it should be uncontainable. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. The first thing he aims to do is to take you out into your world loving people, making time for people. And I'm no expert at it. Okay, Please don't think, oh, what he's telling us right now, he does that every day. I don't. Okay, I can shamefully go months without sharing what I know, I should, without being intentional about opportunities that are right in front of you. Just grab the knob and open the door. Okay? I, the last thing, so, so we remember the gospel is for believers and unbelievers. We remember that the gospel is for our failures. And in communion, we celebrate and remember the glorious gospel. Folks, here, here, here's, here's my proof that the gospel is for believers because this celebration is gospel-saturated. It's broken body and blood saturated. And as you partake of it, you are to do it remembering. Why? Because I tend to think that the gospel is for unbelievers, not believers. But when I hold these elements, I am told to examine myself and confess any sin that I find in my heart because the gospel of Christ that saved me is the gospel of Christ that frees me and keeps me. So as you partake of the elements today, 
Do it like the shepherds would. Good news of great joy. In the gospel, I have been changed. I have been forgiven. I have been rescued. And as you do this, you will nullify the power of sin in your life. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ, I would encourage you. I would encourage you like I would encourage anyone that comes and asks me. If you know you're a broken sinner in need of a Savior, there is hope for you. If you say, well, I'm just an average person, there's hope for you. That's who Jesus thought. Flee to him this morning. Come to him. Confess your sin. Trust. Believe. And then begin to obey a glorious Savior. And then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. If you know Christ this morning and you are captive right now as you sit, I would encourage you, cry out to Jesus and avail yourself of his precious blood that cleanses from all sin. And then as you celebrate it, remember, here's what Jesus said. As you do this, you proclaim my death till I come. To who? To yourself. Because you need to hear it. And this is why he came. And then once you've heard it, you begin to speak it to those around you. And God begins to work. And you get to participate in the joy of the angels who can say to people, there is born for you a Savior. He's Christ the Lord. And you know this, I'm no angel. But I can fulfill their role in my daily life if I'm willing to let God use me and fill me by his Spirit to that end. God, help us to be a gospel-driven, gospel-saturated church that revels in the gospel, that glories in the gospel, that treasures the gospel, and that in communion this morning remembers the gospel. Lord, let us this morning examine our hearts and where we find a lack of love or a lack of centrality for the gospel, which is most precious to us, may we confess that to you this morning and say, God, please, by the power of your grace, change me, forgive me, cleanse me, and use me. And then eat of that bread and drink of that cup, proclaiming to yourself and those around you, your hope is in Christ. Lord, we love you. Help us to celebrate your presence in this table this morning, in this season, gospel-centered, gospel-saturated people.